Welcome back to an episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we are going to talk to Jeremy Smith with Linder Media. And I will mention this later on the episode during our conversation, but it's been a while, a long while since we talked to Jeremy, and it feels like just yesterday. It's honestly, it sometimes really blows me away when we go back and and we look at you know how long it's been since we talked to a guest. It'll feel like it's been like two months ago, and it's been in this case three years. <laughs> so it's crazy how that works for you know for this podcast. But I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in again this week. I uh, don't know that I have a whole lot going on here. You know, like we're just uh, we're in the Christmas season, which is typically a slower season for us in, at Team Rhino Outdoors. The summer fishing season is much busier than than now because many anglers have. They've hung it up. They've put their boats away, winterized. They're thinking about ice. They're thinking about Christmas, New Year's, you know, that kind of stuff. So, But if you still are one of those anglers looking to get out and chase muskies or you need gear for next season or that angler on your fishing list, make sure you check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. You can find everything that you need for your anglers or your fishing or however you want to talk about it. But you can check out our website. And Brad... Brad Hoppy's back with us again this week. Brad, why don't you talk a little bit about Muskie Mayhem Tackle? And I don't know, what do you have to add to this episode this week? No, I'll tell you, I'm just sitting here busy doing some editing, trying to get the TV shows put together for Mayhem 10,000 Calf. But uh, in the meantime, if you're looking for any kind of blade bait, you can check out muskiemayhemtackle.com, as well as check out our social side. And uh, yeah, that's about it, I guess. I, I'm ready to to get after this podcast and anxious to talk to Jeremy. It's been quite a while. All right, Brad, short and sweet. I think this week, I mean, like I said, I don't have a whole lot to, to add to it. I mean, it's been uh, relatively quiet around here as far as fishing trips and things like that. I, I have gotten my butt kicked recently on some fishing trips, but we don't need to d- divulge too much into that. That's really no fun to talk about. So let's just dial up our conversation we had with Jeremy Smith. All right, our guest this week is Jeremy Smith with Linder Media, and I had to look this up just recently, and the last time we talked to Jeremy for his own episode was number 84, so it's been almost three years, I think, yeah, almost three years since we've had him on, 84, we're up to episode 251 today, and I know we did talk to him on the uh, roundtable episode that we did at the Minnesota Muskie Expo this past, uh, we'll call it spring because it was March, but that's uh, the last time we've talked to Jeremy. So, Jeremy, uh, how are things going? I really appreciate you coming out today. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, Things are going good. We're uh, obviously, uh, no, I'm not musky fishing anymore, but, uh, but yeah, we're, we're, we're rolling through stuff, transitioning into ice, deer hunting's kind of wrapping up here. So, yeah, starting to think about uh, muskies more and more, getting the shop ready to make some baits. And, uh, yeah, as you know, muskies are always on the mind. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not, like you said, it never ends with us, right? That's, yeah, right. I mean, we go, and, and this year it appears as though maybe it's going to be like a condensed feeling because we're here, we are in the first week of December and the, the temperatures are, are fine, bad if you're looking for ice or, or lots of it to drill holes in, but it's good if you're one of those people that just tries to survive the winter, which is something that I do. I don't necessarily, you know, get out and do a lot of ice fishing. So for me, this is a, a welcome you know, thing, but it's not necessarily for every single person that's out there. Yeah, man, it is nice. Oh, that's just unbelievable. Wouldn't have thought this in mid-October when we had snow and cold and thought it was, thought it was over. And now here we are. 
Yeah, I mean, for, you know, Wisconsin, they're the southern part of the, well, the whole state is actually open for muskies, but you need to target them with uh, open water. You can't target them through the ice, so the upper half is probably closed off because they do actually have ice up there. But the southern half of Wisconsin, they, I mean, they're likely going to be able to enjoy some muskie fishing here for a little while as long as you're willing to potentially do a little bit of work. I'd imagine there'll be some shoreline ice and things like that. We've had snow recently, so temperatures have to be, you know, right about that, that freezing temperature range. So things... You know, things are still active as if you're uh, if you're willing to put up with a little bit of a work to get on the water and chase muskies here in southern Wisconsin. Yeah, sounds great. All right, well, Brad, I'll let you take over. You this is your episode because you're the one that actually did some work on it. You know, you were dreaming about Jeremy at one o'clock in the morning writing down some notes. So oh, I'll let uh, I'll let Brad handle it from here, Brad. What do you want to talk about today? Wow. <laughs> no i knew i knew having jeremy on i was gonna have to be prepared so i i did put some notes together about one o'clock this morning and uh i think it's important sometimes to have something to talk about anyway anyway i i kind of thought we'd go down the road you know jeremy spends a ton of time in sunset country and i know that that's a part of the show and everything else so i thought about trying to go through like a seasonal progression of the sunset country. And when I say that we're talking about Canada, people don't understand that. So that's kind of what I was thinking. How's that sound? Jeremy? Oh man, that's, that, that, I love it. I can talk about Canadian muskies all day long. So yeah, it's, it's an amazing, amazing place for sure. And, and uh, yeah, that's where my heart is always at is up there. So let's kind of go through, you know, what are some of the different bodies of water that you're fishing up in Canada? Well, you know, I've been fortunate to fish, you know, a, a number of them, you know, Lake of the Woods and Crow and Dryberry and uh, Winnipeg River and, you know, Laxul and Wabagoon and Denorwick and Eagle and Manitou. And so, you know, and then, of course, Cedar, Peralt, the Indian chain. I've got a chance to fish a lot of the different fisheries. Eagle happens to be one of my uh, favorite places in, in the world, you know, to, to fish. So I do spend a lot of time on, on Eagle, but they're all they're they all kind of have their own personality too, which is really, really cool. You know, uh, many times they, they fish the same, of course, they're very dynamic fisheries, big, you know, big bodies of water often that have, you know, multiple different types of basins, different habitats. And, you know, if you're fishing Laxul, for example, you might be fishing a lot more sand than you would, you know, fishing Manitou, you know, a radically different fishery. So um, yeah, they're, 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 they're all really unique and they're just, it's so fun to put it together. You know, it's not, I'm not ripping on Minnesota fisheries, but as you guys know, I mean, a lot of our fisheries, you might be fishing a two mile long weed bed and there's subtleties to it, but just being up there and, you know, with your eyes, seeing how a spot is laid out and target casting and not knowing what could be possibly coming off the structure. It's just, it's just amazing. It's beautiful. There's very few people, there's big wild fish. And I, I you know, I just love it. So well, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this seasonal progression is because I hear a lot of times guys will talk about that, you know, the month of September comes along and they struggle in Canada and nobody seems to want to go up there, you know, the end of August into September. And years ago, I used to spend quite a bit of time on the woods. And I mean, that was one of my favorite times of the year. So I'm kind of curious on that progression. One other question I have, little Jeremy, before we get into that is, how far east have you gone in Canada? Have you made it out to the Larry or uh, Georgian Bay or Nipissing or anything like that? No, no, I have not. And uh, it's on the bucket list. We do a trip, uh, Jimmy and I do every year out to Toronto to do a sports show 
out there for Andy Pilata. And uh, there's some amazing, amazing fishermen out there. And, and uh, you know, you hear the stories about what happens happens in the east. And it, it just seems like one of those things that uh, if you go east, you may never never come back, right? So um, <laughs> it's, def- it's definitely a, a bucket list deal. I just, uh, I haven't had the chance to, to do it at this point in time with where my kids are at and what's going on with, with work and the amount of time we spend in Northwest Ontario. I've, I've not had the chance, but uh, at some point I would really, really love to get out and fish the St. Lawrence and the Ottawa and Nipissing and some of those other smaller bodies of water too, you know, um, near Nipissing would be really, really a, a lot of fun. So. So yeah, man. But anyway, no, that that's a great question about that uh, September August time frame. You know, years ago when I used to start going up there, you, you know, you could count on uh, Jeff Gustafson and I used to spend a lot of time together, and he would run a, a whitetail operation. And so, like by Halloween, I mean, it was really hard to even think about getting a boat in on Lake of the Woods, and you know, now now going, you know back into the season a lot of times you know like just after labor day that first second week of september you could kind of count on that you were going to have a really major cold front coming in things are going to change stuff was going to get weird you might get sleet snow and it seems like the last number of years it's not like that at all where september is fishing a lot more like august at least the first few weeks and you're not seeing that that big flop often until you know the first part of october so to me, September has been, uh, you know, a really great, great month up there. It's still, it's fun because it's fishing still a lot like summer is in many cases. I mean, there can still be fish in the weeds. There's fish on the rock reefs. There's fish on, on deeper structures. So, I mean, everything is in play that time of year, including all of the, the different baits that you want to throw. Um, so I wouldn't be intimidated by it, you know, anymore, especially the, with the way the weather patterns have been. And the way a lot of these Canadian fisheries set up as well is that if the lake is flipping or there's a big cold front, there's often something happening somewhere on the lake because it's not all doing the same thing at the same time. And that's just what's so cool is being on one body of water. You've got a lot of different fisheries and habitat types that you can explore. I would say this, Jeremy, I can't disagree with what you said there as far as September is more like August nowadays. It's really strange. And then it seems like we get this crazy cold front, some nasty weather in the month of October, and then it warms back up. And it's been like a three or four year cycle that we've seen now. I I don't know. It's very strange. But one of the other things that I would think, and I know from my past experience, you know, you get into the month of September and there is hardly anybody up there fishing at that point. So that's kind of a beauty of uh, that time of the year as well for Canada. There's hardly, like you said, there's hardly any pressure. And a lot of those big fish, you know, do tend to move shallow. I mean, that's the one thing that I will say about September that I've seen the last few years is it has not been, for me anyway, and, and maybe other guys would say things are different, but it's not been one of those things where you could say, like, I've got, I've got this pattern in September where I know that the fish, I'm just picking structures, but the fish are in, you know, little little weed cups next to a rock point or they're on the you know they're out in the ocean on the on the rock piles it's like fish just have seemed to me up there to be using spots so it the the fish might be on a on a weed shoreline and that spot just happens to be loaded on your trip and then there's another spot 10 miles down the lake that's got it's a a mid-lake rock reef where there's a number of fish using it and then a lot of the spots you would traditionally think or you try to pattern it's like you, you can't necessarily put a pattern together so the hard part has really been just trying all kinds of different stuff. And then 
if you do, that's the other thing is it's like, if you do find a fish or catch a fish in an area, it's like, you got to go hit everything nearby that looks good. Cause it just seems like the fish tend to be in zones where they're lit up that time of year. There's a lot of fish using a certain area of the lake and then you'll go to another basin and it's totally dead. You know, uh, the, the, one of my favorite sections of Eagle for September uh, and I was up there, I spent a couple weeks of September up there this year. It was like, I just finally wrote it off. You know, we fished it a number of times. There's just like no fish in other areas that are look like July spots. It's like, that's just where they are. So you really have to be open-minded and be like, okay, this is where I, I have caught fish traditionally. This is a good zone, but Hey man, I fished like 10 of the best spots, two out of these three days. I'm not seeing anything, but I'm going, I'm going into a shallow basin that should be July stuff. And that's, that's where we're catching fish. So you just never know. So you really do have to, that makes sense. It just doesn't seem like it's an easy pattern to put together. It's like, you got to go fish spots in different areas. And when you find one, start just picking apart everything that's, that's nearby. And that's the other cool thing about Canada, of course, is there's just so many good spots. And that's one of the other things that I've learned is that, you know, when I first started going up there, you might fish a big structure that might be a community spot. You're thinking, okay, this is great. But then there's a little island next to it and you're maybe tired from fishing that so you want to go on a run and then you start just jumping all over the lake and you know over the years on these spots if there's a fish there go to the next thing that looks good just, just you, everything that looks good eventually produces a fish i mean that just seems like that's how, how it goes up there if you put enough time in and if there's fish in the area fish you know make your runs a lot smaller well let's kind of go into that jeremy i mean the cool thing about you is that you do get to hit a bunch of different bodies of water. What's your approach when you get up there? Say it's uh, the beginning of the season, you're on a body of water that you hadn't fished for, say, 10 years. What are you going to do to kind of start off your day? Well, you know, it's always good to uh, try to get some local local knowledge wherever you can or, or, or pick up what you've heard. You know, early in the season, um, you know, weeds, to me, I, I, I love fishing fishing weed beds wherever you can. So, and that's been in a lot of the fisheries up there, Lake of the Woods, Winnipeg River, um, other places, the weeds have been hard to come by. So, um, you know, if you can find good weeds early in the season, that is a, that's a great deal. So, I mean, we spend a lot of time when we go to the new body of water, just driving, man, just like looking, looking, looking. It just doesn't seem like it's that productive. If you, you show up to a new place, place you haven't been before where you just get in the boat, pick a spot on the map, drop the trolling motor and start casting. It's like, we're going to go look at this stuff, sample what the habitat looks like, look for bait, you know, really using our electronics and start to start to cover a lot of water and just have that patience to really drive and explore. And kind of what I was hinting at before is that, you know, there might be a spot close to camp. You, you drive over and oh man, there's a tons of minnows. There's nice weeds here. Okay. But yeah, but I, I really want somebody had said, or I caught a fish 10 miles up the lake. So you start going up there and you're not seeing as much whatever, whatever, but just take those little clues and just start start fishing those spots where you're seeing signs of life. You're seeing, you know, seeing the right the right types of, of weed growth and, and, and don't get caught up on that there was fish here. I've got this spot that historically has been good because those fish just move and shift. And like I said, those fisheries are so dynamic that taking the time to figure out where the best habitat is, where the most food is, is just where the muskies are going to be. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. You know, Jeremy, one, let me just jump back a little bit. You know, you we're talking about Canada. How was your, your recent trips? I'm assuming you went up there this summer. Yeah, we were up there, there quite a bit and, uh, had one trip in, uh, late June, early July, which is a great, 
great trip. But then we kind of got on a little lake trout bender, which uh, took uh, took the muskies kind of out of out of commission. So we were in northern Saskatchewan and up on on Lake Superior. But then this fall, I was able to get up there. Well, I suppose I spent five weeks up up in that part of the world in like September and October, and it it was good. And it was it was very much like I was talking about, though it wasn't ever like you know, just had this pattern that was like really simple. And if you guys remember this year was like, whatever, the second week of September, the water temps were like in the high fifties and they didn't get below 50. And that was last time I was up there was the third week of October and the water temps were almost the same for like a month. So it was like, everything was stalled out. The wind was out of the East for like a month and the fish just were scattered. It was still good fishing, but you just had to grind through it and be like, okay, I'm going to fit. This is a, this is a great spot. I'm going to fish it. This is a great spot. I'm going to fish. It. I'm going to fish it. And, and, and the, you would just get bites or run into fish on spots. You could fish them three times throughout the week. And one of the times there'd be a big fish there. So I was never able to really say that, like, if we go fish certain types of habitat, we're going to put a pattern together and crush this fall. It was just like, you had to just go fish everything. And you know, the fish would just show up and, and bite. So it was, it was tough and it was one of those, you know, things as a muskie fisherman where you just got to, you got to put the blinders on sometimes and just grind through it. And, you know, you, you make, you make a lot of good casts. You have confidence in the spots you're fishing, the baits you're throwing and they show up, you know, if you, if you just stick with it, they show up. Well, if you dealt with anything like what we dealt with, uh, Chase and I with Manston Thousand Cast, we seem to hit every stinking cold front of the year. <laughs> All of our film shoots were cold fronts, and it, it was miserable. But we we made it work, and that's kind of what you're talking about. You just got to keep going. You can't stop. I mean, my old saying, you know, you can't catch them from the couch. So you might as well be out there and working at it. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you just got, you know, you guys have done it long enough, and it's it's not, I mean, there obviously is, there are people who are really great at musky fishing and, and obviously have things dialed, but really a lot of it is just being, stubborn and just sticking with it not not giving up you know and and just being smart about the choices you're making and and it happens you know one of the one of the baits too that i want to want to talk about in the fall that i think is overlooked and and um is big bucktails man like like uh, we do this thing up on eagle every year we call it musky palooza out of eagle lake island lodge that's at the that's the last week of september and i'm always telling everybody like this is big bucktail big you know big heavy bucktail time you know throwing 12s 13s that type of thing, just slow rolling them. And it's really hard to get people in that mindset. They're like, it's fall. I got to throw big rubber. I got to throw crankbaits or jerkbaits. And I'm not saying those aren't great presentations, but man, big blades, slow rolled in the fall is one of the most effective ways. When you're getting baits that are down four, six, eight feet, slow rolling those things, they just produce big fish grenades, you know, that same program. It, it really is amazing. Yeah, I think over the years, Jeremy, I think us as musky anglers, we've been conditioned by, I don't know how to say this, like the media or the, you know, magazine articles and so on and so forth. It's like we're trained to, oh, it's October. Now we're going to throw bulldogs. Right. And it's not necessarily the case. I mean, I don't think the fish change like that. And I've actually caught fish like the day before ice up um, on big bucktail. So I think mentally we all are conditioned to think or do something in a certain way. And it's not always necessarily the right way. Yeah, man, I think you're hundred percent correct. And I think probably why people don't have success with bucktails, I'm of course making assumptions here, but it's that they're just not in the, they're not 
fishing on properly. So if you're fishing, I don't care what bait it is, and when it starts to get cold, if the fish are down 10, 12, 15 feet, and they're near the bottom, if you're throwing a bucktail that's six inches under the surface, yeah, man, you're not, you're not going to get them. But when you start getting a bucktail deep near them, I mean, that's just, it's, it's depth control is really the whole secret. It's not like the bait loses its effectiveness. It's that when the water's warmer and the fish are closer to the surface, yeah, you catch a lot more on them, but they still bite them as long as you can get them close to them. And that's why those big blades too, they've got such a presence. They can feel them. It's a great silhouette. I mean, it's just, to me, it's one of those magic baits in the fall that I feel like you could tell people a hundred times, like throw giant heavy bucktails and they'll look at you like you're, you're crazy. And it's like, what'd you catch your fish on? Well, bucktails, man. Well, it's probably the most versatile tool there is in our whole uh, tackle box, that's for sure. And, you know, like you said, fishing them right, right? There's a time for speed. There's a time for the going slow, fast. You got to you gotta figure that out. And a lot of the times what I'm doing, when I'm slow rolling, it's because I really want to get that bait down a little bit deeper and more in their face. Oh, hundred percent. And that, again, that's the, you're right. That's the secret, Brad. It's just getting it to me. It's getting it, getting it close to them. And, and, you know, so often conditioned to think that bucktails are, you know, a reaction bite, you got to fish them fast, man, man, they, they bite those things when the, the blades are barely spinning. As long as those blades are, are going round and round, man, they love them. They love them. We, we just often joke at the office, like, you know, when it comes to filming musky shows, it's like, you know, musky fishing is bucktail fishing because it's just like so often it's the best thing best thing going i'm not saying that other you know rubber of course is is right there but uh, it, it's just remarkable that whether it's opener or it's late in the season man I, I i just would hate to be on the water without without blades brad this is something you've been preaching on the podcast for 249 episodes well you know i guess it's partly because uh, that's my business but you know, at the end of the day, it is an effective tool. And I think uh, some, sometimes underutilized. And then in other cases, I think uh, some of the other stuff is underutilized. What are some of the other baits that you're choosing to use up there as the season progresses, Jeremy? Well, you know, this year seemed like it was the year of tubes. Um, you know, it just seemed like you, you just couldn't, you know, tubes were just absolutely unbelievable. Had uh, uh, the last trip I did up there was with my son and we almost had... Uh, we almost had a double on uh, one tube. It was pretty cool. Had had hooked one, and was uh, another one was was with it, and it was it was a really really pretty pretty cool experience seeing both both the fish trying to the other fish trying to get the tube out of the other one's mouth. But um, it didn't happen. We didn't not not both of them bit. But that was one of the cooler things I'd seen in musky fishing in a long long time. But uh, again, I think you know whether it's a big bulldog, of course pounders. I, lo I love those late in the fall too, but. You know, it, it's just so much of it is depth control. I still love throwing like the, the triple D's, the suspending jerk baits, baits, that, you know, baits that can get down and you really just have to experiment with what, you know, what, what's going to work, work best. And, and to me, a lot of times, you know, that, that fall period, if the conditions are favorable and the fish want to bite so much of it is just having something that's efficient, that's going to get down to them. And I think one of the things that makes the tube such a great tools, of course, it hunts, it darts, it goes up, it goes down, it goes left, it goes right. And it can be in there, you know, and it can be right, right in their face. You've got great depth control. You can throw it up into four feet on the top of the reef and just, you know, work, work its way down all the way back to the boat. So um, that's been great. Obviously, you know, a big, you know, I'm a pounder fan. I like throwing those or the big mag dogs. I think they're, they're pretty amazing, 
amazing baits too. And then one, one bait that, uh, I still don't see a lot of people throw either is, is that triple D, you know, I love fishing smallmouth bass and wild multi-species stuff, but the X-Rap is one of my all-time favorite lures. And that triple D is so much like an X-Rap where it's just darting, hunting, and it just stops. And getting that bait, especially when the water gets really cold, getting that bait to just stop and sit still in the fish's face, is it can just be just crazy awesome bait. Yeah, I would say based off of sales in general, like the triple D is definitely an underutilized tool. It, like I probably mentioned this before, but... I used to use it in really shallow water, just banging the crap out of the rocks, like on shallow rivers, because it was like the only thing I could find that would withstand that kind of punishment. And then you could, you know, beat the crap out of it. I'm not recommending that you do it because it's not something they're going to warranty if you do break it. But I, I know it worked when I, when I employed that technique and it was one of the baits that I used because it was just so indestructible. You're right, Jeff. Yeah. Those things are tough, man. I pound them off the rocks too. And I, I think I've maybe broke a bill on one of them. It's not, you know they're they're tough they're they're great yeah well you know it is you know a lot of those plastic limp lipped crankbaits they have a tr- you know, tough time handling much abuse at all i mean some of them you barely breathe a rock and it's going to break in half but um you know with that one you can definitely uh, give it some abuse but yeah for sure it was a it was a great you know great tool and underutilized tool yeah for sure and one thing i'll say about fishing that bait too that i've seen uh, where, where there's a difference. I mean, this happens with all kinds of different presentations too, but if you're going to take a triple D and you're going to cast it out and reel it in and do like, you just sweep the bait, stop it, sweep the bait, stop it. I'm not saying you can't get bit on that. They will bite it. But the secret with that bait, in my opinion, is you cast the bait out, crank it down to depth, and then you start hitting the bait on a slack line so that you're snapping it throwing slack back in the line, slapping it, throwing slack back in the line. That's giving that bait to shoot left, shoot right, come up, go down, and then maybe a couple cranks to dive it back down deep if it's starting to starting to rise on you. But the, the difference in, in fish catching between hitting it on a slack line versus pulling it is like night and day. I mean, they're two radically different baits. If you fish them, fish them in, a, in a pull pause versus hitting it on a slack line, that bait just jumps and it comes alive. What uh, type of rod are you using when you're you know, ripping these triple Ds? So I'm usually using an 8.6 medium heavy fast, the Legend Elite. So I like that one. It's a little bit soft, but uh, at the same time, those are a little bit lighter wire hooks. And I found that if I've gone with something that's a little heavier, I tend to tear more hooks. So I like that little bit softer rod. And I always put a feather trailer on the back of those things and I would say probably 50% of the muskies I catch on that bait come up and kiss that feather trailer. So having that softer rod for me with the lighter wire hooks tends to put more fish in the boat. All right. So you're definitely not using like a big, heavy, stiff rod like many would think that you would. No, I'm not. Nope. Nope. I'm not. So Jeremy, you know, one of the things that uh, I consider all the time is watching water temps versus calendar dates. And I'd kind of like to get your opinion on that. You know, how much are you dialing in on water temps? Or are you kind of looking more towards that calendar side of things? Oh, that's a good question, Brad. Well, I would say kind of a little bit of both, but we'll, we'll go back to the Canadian thing right now. And so I guess just, I'm, I'm just trying to answer the, the question as I think out loud here. So I usually go up the last week of June, first part of July, right before the 4th of July. And um, I, I love fishing little bucktails and, and weeds up there. It's one of my favorite trips of the year. 
And my experience has been that it's amazing fishing that time of year. And I've been up there when the water's been 62, 63. And I've been up there when the water's been 72 at that time of year. And the fish are almost every year in the same spots. So I don't necessarily know that it has as much to do with water temperature earlier in the season, you know. So I, I think the, the calendar can play a role. But, you know, then conversely, like in the, in the fall where, you know, MEA weekend, for example, which would be a great weekend to go trolling, you know, usually it's too cold to cast. Uh, and you could have some spots that you knew would be loaded up with Cisco's. It's the right time to be there. But I've seen it where you just get your butt handed to you trolling because the fish are way more susceptible to casting because the conditions are better, the fish are shallower, a number of different variables. So I think it can be it can be both, you know. I mean, there's times when the water temperature is not right for certain things to happen. The bite's not going to happen. But when certain things have happened and the, and the habitat's right, they're just, they're just doing what they should be doing during the calendar time frame. So that's probably a long answer, and I don't know if I'm right about that, but that's, that's just kind of a couple observations. Well, I always think it's interesting, and I think that we as anglers, you know, well, the water temp is this, and, and oh, we can't do that now, you know? And again, it's the same thing as what we were talking about earlier. There's no rules in this sport, right? We are talking about fish and bucktails way late into the season. Same thing goes with water temp a lot of times. And, you know, we always look for that progression going in the end of August into September for a big cool down in those first cold fronts. It seems like those fish get pushed shallow. But mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, the last couple of years, we really haven't seen that major cold front that's dropped any water temps and it hasn't right. had that big push. But by calendar, you know, by the time you get into that first week of September, you start seeing that push anyway. And that, that's where that question kind of arrived from. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're hundred percent correct. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I don't, I don't really know what to say about it. It's like, well, muskies just going to do what they want to, what, what they want to do, I guess. Yeah. Like I said, no rules. Right. And, and yeah. the anglers just break the rules and let's make things happen. Yeah. You, you could be more right about that, that, you know, there just, there just aren't rules. And, and, uh, I just remember early on in my musky fishing, you know, when I was a teenager trying to figure this stuff out and you were just like following the book on what was said in, in musky hunter magazine that you only throw top water in these conditions and bucktails are for summer. And this is for that. This is for that. It was like, you know, everything was just so compartmentalized and it's like, that's just not, it's just not the, the case at all. So the secret is making lots of casts and being confident in what you're throwing and doing and, and, just being smart and doing it just smart and stubborn about, about what you're doing. Just keep at it. And they, they come in the boat, you know? I think the lack of rules is sort of like what can, uh, I would say it, it can keep you in the sport, right? But it can also drive people away from the sport because of the lack of rules. The muskies will do musky things, right? That's kind of one, one thing that they say. And I think that's some people just can't handle that because they're, like the consistency can be so difficult, but then other people are just driven to it because they're trying to fig, you know, figure out that puzzle every single day. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. I, I can totally see that. It's, it's over, it's overwhelming. You know, it, it really is just looking at, looking at all of the different baits, all of the different stuff, when, where, how, but you know, once you've got confidence in something, I mean, that just, just stick with it. And if you've got it, I mean, that really, to me, the biggest thing is, 
If you've got an idea of where the fish are, choose a presentation that will be near the fish or get in their strike zone. It's just a fundamental of, of fishing. If you've got confidence in it, throw it, man. If you can make the, the most casts, you know, if you're fishing traditionally, that's, that's often all it is. I was talking with Brad earlier this this fall, or you know, in, in the, like recently, I guess I would say, because I've been trying to figure out a new lake to me, and I keep telling him, you know, like the one thing about it is all you have to do is get one follow, one fish, one rip trolling, whatever it would be, and like that one piece to the puzzle can just totally change your mindset. You know, you're talking about confidence. Confidence is always key, and that one, you know, just that one encounter just gives you something to to build off of, right? And so that can help build your confidence massively and lead to much bigger successes down the road. 100%, Jeff. Yep, 100%. Yeah, you just need those little reinforcers, and it gets you down the right right path. Yeah, man. So earlier, you brought up something, Jeremy. You talked about driving around, and, and we didn't get in depth on that. When you're driving around looking, when you first approach a lake, what are you actually doing while you're driving around? I know, I know what you're doing, but I'd kind of like to hear your, your input on that. Sure. So, so I have on the front of my boat, I have a Humminbird Mega Live on the trolling motor. So when I start, I put the trolling motor down. If I'm going to, if I'm going to go slow and look at stuff, I'm going to put the trolling motor down, uh, the micro remote in my pocket and I'll jump on, jump on the big motor and I've got side imaging, side imaging going. So I'm looking ahead of me. This is, uh, this can be for shield water or new water, but I'm using the forward facing sonar to know what's ahead of me. So I'm not going to drive up on stuff. I'm not going to hit anything. So I've got a screen set up just for looking ahead. And that's primarily just to, to make sure that I'm not hitting anything. And then I'm using side imaging to look at what is going on, you know, obviously to the, to the sides of the boat. So you're looking for weed cover. You're looking for bottom composition. What you know, really what type of cover uh, is in those areas and also, also signs of bait. And the, and the forward facing sonar also gives you some really great insights when you're looking ahead of the boat and how often there can be bait in an area that might be near the surface, but by the time your boat goes over it, it's scattered and it's not necessarily visible on traditional 2D sonar or, or your side imaging. So that's, that's a really nice tool to have to be able to look forward and see what's, see what's happening. So when you, you, oh, wow, here we go. We've got some rocks. Oh, we've got some weeds. Oh, this is a really thick patch of weeds. Oh, cool. Look at this. We've got, you know, we've got a nice little sand spit that's got a few weeds on it and then it just dumps into mud and goes into a, a moderate depth basin. This could be a great, you know, great spot to run into fish. So we're, we're, I'm just always, we're just always looking, you know, putting on miles, looking at typically looking at the best structure. And I can't uh, state enough how important mapping is either. I mean, we take it for granted, but you know, some of these, you know, I've done, did, did a flying trip this last summer to a, a for lake trout, but to a, a huge lake. And when you show up and there is no map, you have no idea other than the, the outline of the land where reefs are. I mean, all of a sudden you, your brain changes dramatically when you don't have a map to base your stuff off of, you realize how hugely important that is because you can't find any mid lake stuff unless you just happen to get lucky and drive over it. You know, I mean, it is, it is pretty amazing how powerful mapping is. So, I mean, that really should be the first piece of uh, technology that you buy because without the map, you just really don't know what to start, where to start. So if you if you fish fisheries that have nothing, literally nothing, you realize how valuable that is. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, the mapping side of things, I, I think back to 25 years ago, 30 years ago, before GPS mapping anyway, and all the work that I put in trying to figure out different mid-lake structures and so on and so forth. And it's funny, I still have some of those waypoints on my GPS today where mm-hmm. they match up almost perfect with my mapping, right? And so mapping, I, I still think, is one of the greatest tools that ever came out, honestly, for us anglers, that's for sure. But in today's world, now we're talking, you know, the side imaging side of things, obviously, have really kicked in over the years. But now it's all talk about live. What's your opinions on using live and, and utilizing that as a tool? Well, you know, so I'm, I'm a live user. Um, I, I really do feel that all those technologies are important, you know, just echoing what you said, Brad. I mean, we take now for granted that maps, I mean, that's just like a given that you're going to have a map. And obviously, it's usually important. So they all have their their benefits, you know. I mean, side imaging is just such an incredible tool to understand the habitat and in many cases, if it's the right bottom, see muskies. But live is also one of those things that um, it can teach you so much so quickly that it is, uh, I mean, it, it really is remarkable. And it's, it's not where uh, the, the, the fish was, it's where the fish is, you know, and that's, that's really a, a game changer with that, that whole, whole technology. So um, I'm not a, a sharpshooter, but I'm not saying that if I'm working down a shoreline and I see a giant target show up off the break, then I'm not, of course, gonna gonna cast to it. But I love it for fishing new water. Again, like I said, I, I only have one transducer. It's on the on the bow of my boat. But I, I love being able to look forward. And when you're you're fishing new water, it's like you fished it for 30 years. I mean, if you just had side imaging or 360. You know, you can often, if it's a, if there's not a lot of contour or cover there, you can end up going on top of the best spots or missing things. So to me, having that forward-facing sonar, giving me the ability to see what's coming up ahead and make adjustments with the boat to know where I'm going to be casting and, 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 and where the best cover is, is absolutely amazing. I mean, you can go to a place you've never fished before that might've taken you many, many, many attempts to figure out how to fish the spot properly because it's so complex. And your first go round, it's like you fished it for 20 years. So it, it's, it's pretty remarkable in that sense. And obviously, you know, what, what you can do with fish that are suspended in, in open water and whatever is, um, you know, it's nuts. They just, they just stick out. So yeah, man, it's, it's pretty crazy. I think it's definitely an awesome, awesome tool for boat control, you know, and I've said it before on the podcast. I think I said it last week, but I have always had depth off my trolling motor. And the reason I do is so that I don't crash on the structure, right? Well, now I have side view up on the bow of my boat and what an awesome, awesome way to actually approach structure, right? You're, you're able to see that right away, like you're saying. So now your boat control is going to be so much more improved. As well as live, um, I'm generally running my live as I fish out of the back of the boat. I'll run it like, say, 45 degrees, looking towards the bow just slightly off, and I can see those weeds. I can see those rocks. I can see a fish that's following somebody on the bow of the boat. It's, it's an incredible, incredible tool in that fashion as well. Yeah, it, it is, you know, and that's a, that's a great, great setup. I mean, obviously, you want more and more, but the way, the way you're doing it is, is such a cool, cool deal to see, too, because especially if you're fishing a little bit dirtier water, it's amazing how many times you'll have fish follow, 
And it's like, they know where the visibility line is where you can see and can't see. So you might have a day where you had 10 follows, but you never actually saw one. You know what I mean? So they can give you the confidence like, Oh, they're here, man. They're following. Um, and so what, what you have there is, is amazing. And so when I'm running, I, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in, in between, so I've got it on the bow, but what I'm doing, so I've got the side imaging on the, on the bow transducer as well, or on the trolling motor as well, which is amazing to see exactly what the habitat looks like that you're cast to. And rather than using 360, I, I run an Alltrack, so I'll just pan often in, in front of me, which I'm then looking with forward facing, but then also painting what's in front of me with the side imaging, like a 360 image would look like. But when I finish every cast, I try to just quick turn the trolling motor head back towards our baits and just see. And so many times you'd be like, oh, we got we gotta we gotta follow. And and having that technology and knowing that fish can often follow where you can't see them can be the difference in having a good trip and a you know a, a terrible trip because you were fishing and you're like, I, we, we just, we're not seeing anything. We're not moving any fish. The fish don't appear to be here and they're not showing up on the other technologies. And it's like, yeah, man, you were fishing the right spots. They're there. And now you can come back when you've got the right, right condition. So it teaches you, teaches you so much, you know, and, and it definitely catches you more fish. And I, I love fishing muskies traditionally, whatever, I guess I like suffering, suffering through it. So, you know, that's primarily how I'm using it. Uh, not necessarily going out and trying to sharpshoot fish, but, but I just think it's just such an awesome tool for boat control and showing you things that the other technologies aren't necessarily showing you. Another great example is a follow after dark. A lot of times, you know, you're, you're going to go through the motions of a figure eight, but having live or even side imaging will definitely improve your catch rate after dark. A lot of times, some of those fish that are really deep, it could be during the middle of the day, but when they're really deep, um, we've we've made it happen, you know, and, and I think we showed that a little bit this year on the on the TV show, so it's an incredible tool, there's no question about it. The sharpshooting thing, definitely, I, I have some concerns with that, Jeremy, and I know you do probably as well, I, I don't know, I just hope it doesn't get abused, and, and the fisheries could possibly take kind of a dive because of it as well. Yeah, it's super, yeah. Yeah, it's it's super concerning, you know, what 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 can happen out there and fish that once had refuge. And, you know, I've, and so I still go troll open water too, right? So I know that that was a sanctuary that wasn't used for years. So, you know, I'm guilty of going out there and targeting fish in op open water, open water too. And, and, but just trying to be respectful of where the fish are at in the water column is just such a, such a big deal. So not targeting fish that are, you know, really deeper than, you know, 15, 20 feet. Cause you don't know the history of where the fish was. If the fish was down in 30 and it came up to 15, uh, there's a good chance it'll experience barrel trauma. And of course you've got some thermal issues too, that'll happen if they're in cooler water and the surface is warmer. So obviously they're big, beautiful fish. We all, we all love. So I think it's, you know, the temptations there to, to see them, but you know, if they're near the surface, absolutely. But targeting fish, particularly that are that are really deep, and you see it throughout the year all the time. I mean, you're fishing a spot, and you look out to your left, and you're like, "Oh man, look at this! We've got uh, you know, 35 feet, two feet off the bottom. There's a giant mark." You know, you just got to say, "Cool, there's muskies in the area, but I'm not fishing for that one." That's my opinion. I can't uh, disagree with anything you just said. You know, and it. In my neck of the woods, I'm fishing a lot of deep water basin uh, lakes, and 
I'll tell you, it seems like barrel trauma can be more of an issue on some of these types of lakes that I'm fishing. And so it really scares me. And I, I don't know. I, I got mixed emotions. And like I've always said, it, it comes with responsibility, right? And if you're going to do some of that stuff, I think you got to be responsible on what fish you're fishing. And, and you're right. That fish could have came from 30 feet down and moved up to 15 foot in the water column. Is it completely secure to catch? I don't know. You know, that's the scariest part. It is. Yep. It, it definitely is. And, and so even if you're, I mean, you guys know this too, but even if you're throwing a bucktail on the surface, if you fish muskies long enough, you know that you're going to end up running into a fish that just like bloated, you know, like obviously it came from deep water and it doesn't, doesn't want to release. And I, I'm not saying it's the answer and I don't know what the, the proper tools are, but it's having seen it with live. I mean, I've had a couple instances over the last number of years since live has come onto the scene Two that I can think of it where like, okay, I got a fish one James Linder caught just throwing on top of a, a weed bed. It was of course, next to deep water. It was just a, whatever, you know, 42 inch muskie or whatever, but we couldn't release the fish and it was just bloated and having a release tool. I just keep a heavy piece of lead with a snipped off hook, dropping it down, looking at live. And it's like, okay, the fish got to 15 feet and bolted. And we just watched the fish swim, swim away. It's like, okay, well, not saying that's what you want to do, but it's definitely better than letting that thing sit on the surface, letting the gulls pick its eyes out, right? So also, I think it is important, just like having bolt cutters and whatever, is to have something in your boat that can get fish back to depth. I'm not saying it's the answer. I'm not saying if you have this tool, you should be able to fish, fish in deep water. But getting a fish back to depth is probably better than just letting it sit on the surface if you do encounter a fish with barrel trauma. Yeah, it's amazing, Jeremy. I, I love the open water stuff, right? And I've spent many, many years, but I, 20 years ago, I recognized, hey, you know, you get towards the end of June, you start getting into July, you better quit because those fish are getting deeper and deeper. You start experiencing some of that. So I learned it that many years ago, but I think that uh, in today's world, I don't know, I, it scares me with the social platforms and everything else. It's about me, 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 and yeah, in measurements, I guess, you know what I mean? That people just want those pictures so bad. And that's, that's the scariest part. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, 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 it is. I mean, the fish are the most important thing, you know, without the fish, we don't have anything. Can't argue that. That's for sure. So Jeremy, you know, switching back to the mapping topic, are you utilizing any of the mapping tools that uh, bird provides? And I, I know that it definitely improves some of my fishing because I am using Garmin, so it's a little different than what you're using. But at the end of the day, I am continually mapping. And whenever I'm at an idle or I'm casting, um, I have my quick draw on, and I am making sure that I see every little detail of every different body of water that I'm fishing. So I'm, I'm curious if you're doing any of your own mapping as well. Yeah, yeah. So Hummingbird's got the, the auto chart live feature and you need a zero lines SD card to record more than eight hours of data. So yeah, absolutely have it going. Um, you know, again, coming back to these shield lakes, you know, that's just one of the places where I feel like it's absolutely in, insane to have that because you're just always running into spots that you've, you know, there's, there's nothing there. So having that tool is, is, is amazing. And, and the open water stuff too, it's pretty remarkable um, on, you know, what, what you can see in terms of bottom composition changes. So, I mean, I think as anglers have learned over the years that it's not, 
you know, depth isn't everything. It's we think of edges as being some type of a cover edge or a or a weed, you know, a, a weed edge or a, a contour line of drop off. But you know, as you know, places where it goes from gravel to sand or sand to mud or what, whatever it is, those changes in bottom, regardless of how deep it is, are edges. You know, like the great Dick Pearson talks about, muskies love edges, and regardless of depth, those are those are huge. So you know, having that that feature to be able to track. Bottom hardness is a, is a really, really great feature. But, you know, when, when I'm guessing all of us started fishing here, when we would go to a spot before there was mapping and you had, were lucky enough to have a GPS, when you hit the edge of a structure, you'd put a waypoint down. And so, I mean, for years, I'd look at these maps and all the structures on the lake were just outlined with, you know, a zillion waypoints. And I find myself now with all of this technology, if there's a reef that I just found in, in Canada, I'm just basically putting a waypoint now down on a fish that I saw or something that I could hit. But the way the, the boat is set up now with the sonar technology and having auto chart, it's like, I don't necessarily need to put 50 waypoints down on a spot because I can see ahead of the boat. I can see up to the side of the boat. I've got the contours laid out now. So it is really, uh, it's pretty Pretty amazing that you can get a high definition map after just a few rounds through a spot. I think it's pretty interesting, Jeremy. I kind of started, I went to Garmin two years ago. And so <laughs> since I've made that change, I have not made any, I shouldn't say any waypoints because there's a couple weird things. Like I found a tree this year underneath a, in about 30 feet of water and, and the branches are literally almost to the surface. It's kind of cool. So I marked that wow. with my GPS, but otherwise I pretty much have only marked fish at this point. Any fish that I catch, I mark it. Otherwise I don't even utilize it anymore. Like I once did for marking structures and things like that. And the other side to this is, you know, you're talking about those edges in the, in the deep water. It's amazing when you have that hard bottom to soft bottom transition, and this is one thing that Garmin doesn't do, but I know Bird does. You can layer that right on your screen. And those are definitely fish highways, if you will. You know, they're like the interstate. But it seems like fish love, you said it, they love edges. And those edges can be as simple as hard to soft bottom transitions in the deep water. So it's amazing what we have at our fingertips today. I mean, it just truly is. And I know we talk about it all the time, but if you kind of look at the small details, it can bring a uh, really large reward. That's for sure. Yeah. No, you're, you're hundred percent right. And, you know, and, and those little things are, you know, muskies are just, the, the numbers are, are so big that, that, uh, you know, every little small change you make that just starts to put things in your favor. It's just, like you said, it's, it's a lot of those little things that add up to be huge in terms of how many fish that you're putting in the net. So it's, it, it really is amazing. You know, all, all those little things really do matter in the world of muskies. Okay, Jeremy, we haven't done five questions with you, but we haven't done five questions in quite a few weeks, actually. It's something we've kind of gotten away from. So basically, I ask you five questions that are, well, it's, they're, they're more like yes or no, or do you prefer this or that type questions. And sometimes we expand upon it a little bit, but they're not uh, long, drawn-out questions. So don't, no fear, you're not going to be here for an hour and a half answering five of these questions. But let's, uh, let's, start, let's talk about the moon. We haven't talked about the moon this episode. Do you feel the moon is a big deal or not a big deal? I feel like it can be a big deal. Yes. 
So, Jeremy, moving on then, off that, you feel like it could be could be or couldn't be a big deal. Would you prefer a full moon or a new moon? Oh, man, that that's tough. You know, I don't, I don't get to spend every single day on the water, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of do like the, the new moon. But it seems to me that the moon just can be a lot of those trips where it's just a real tough, tough deal, and you've got those, you know, the, the majors obviously can just end up being – a new moon major to me seems like it's been it's been good so i'm, I'm certainly not a, a not a moon expert but i look at it every day and over the years it's it's just added up to be being at the right spot when that happens is put fish in the boat i know this november full moon was garbage so i'm not a fan of november full moon <laughs> it was brutal like terrible yeah. uh, all right so then let's go with uh do you prefer high speed reels or low speed reels well it depends right so i love high speed reels for you know baits that you're fishing slack line but i love i love a low speed reel when i'm fishing supermodels so you know really it's just have choosing the right right tool for the for the job so you know for ripping big rubber i like an eight for pulling 13s i like a five and for a lot of the stuff in between i like a seven all right well let's talk about this i mean this will probably be similar to that do you typically burn more or do you slow roll more I would say I used to burn all the time. I just thought that was the secret. And I have been finding myself fishing slower and slower with blades, slower and slower, even in, in, the, in the summertime. I'm not, but I would say this, that a lot of times if I'm bucktail fishing with small baits in the summer, like I might, I'm, I'm starting my bait often a lot slower. And if I get a fish to engage, then I really, really pick up the speed. But especially weed fishing, I used to fish really fast, but I found that, uh, you know, fishing a little bit slower and then once they're engaged, it's like fish it slow enough for them to find it. And then once they find it, pick it up and watch how fast they can go. All right. Last question is we'll go leader route. Are you using floral more or steel more? Um, well, mostly steel. So bucktails, I like to fish 124 pounds, single strand for the most part. Um, with the swivel next to the bucktail. Um, I do fish some fluorocarbon on rubber. I usually jerk baits, I fish 174 single strand. And then I do use some braided wire like surf strand on a lot of the, the rubber baits. And then I, I uh, just do a, yeah, a little knot to a, a chunk of floral. So some of my um, big rubber stuff is braided and floral, braided wire with floral. Perfect. All right, Jeremy. Well, once again, we want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're supposed to be at a Monday morning meeting uh, five minutes ago, so we're holding you up. But hopefully, they'll uh, they'll understand that you're talking to us two idiots. But, anyways, if people want to learn more about what you're up to, you know what you have going on over at Linder, why don't you give them an idea where they can find what what you guys have going on? Yeah, yeah, appreciate it. So you can go to lindersanglingedge.com. You can check out. Uh, Linder's Angling Edge YouTube channel. We are getting ready to kick off our new season of Linder's Angling Edge here um, the first weekend in January. So there's going to be uh, 26 new shows kicked out. We've also got a series we do for Lund Boats called the Ultimate Fishing Experience. And there is for the musky heads, there are a number of musky episodes coming up uh, in, the, in the series that we're going to be releasing here in, in January. And then in addition, if there's anybody who's into ice fishing, we have a, a website we call Angling Buzz, and there's a lot of current ice fishing content. And of course, it goes 365. So there is reports about fishing throughout the upper Midwest. 
happening every week. So that's the best place to find out where we're doing our stuff. All right, Jeremy. Once again, I want to thank you. I hope that you have a very happy holiday season. I want to uh, – are we going to see you this winter? Are you going to be at the Minnesota show again, do you think, or not? Yeah, I definitely want to make my way down there. So hopefully hopefully, we'll see you guys then. Hope you have a great, great show season. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks for all the good listening that we've had on all the road trips over the, over the years. So keep up the good work, guys. We appreciate it. Well, we very much appreciate the kind words. And before we get out of here, we also want to thank our listeners for – Dialing up Backlash Podcast every single week. We know that many of you are appear to be anxious to listen. I have had a few people send me messages on some of their Spotify must put out how much time you listen to your podcasts over the course of a year. And some of have been outrageous as far as the numbers. So I want to thank all of you for being Backlash Podcast fanatics in a sense and, and, and all of our loyal listeners and our loyal fans. And, and we can't do it without you. So thanks again. We'll see everybody again with a new episode next Wednesday. 